You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneurship Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. My name is Eric Morris, and I will be your host for this episode. All right, I'm really uh, happy to be trying this today. We are, uh, I've started a series of podcasts, and we're going to give this one a shot. Uh, I thought it was a great opportunity to have two of Canada's oldest businesses, oldest family private-run businesses, with us today. And uh, we heard from Charles, uh, 100-year business, almost. And today, uh, this afternoon, we're going to hear about uh, a couple more that are even older. Uh, I'm going to let them tell their stories. I'm not going to steal that. But I'm really happy that uh, both Andrew and John agreed to be with uh, us today to, to talk about their business. And my idea behind it was when you are able to get to an age of business that long, you've been through a lot, okay? Whether it was the Great Depression World War II, World War I, I mean, your company survived that. And, and those were times of huge uncertainty. And I'm sure there's probably half a dozen or, or other episodes. So I was really kind of interested in the, in the idea of family lore and, and some of those things around how do we deal with these situations. So I, I'm putting a lot of pressure on them. But that was one of the things that I thought would be interesting to explore and how they've dealt with uncertainty over the years. So what I'd like uh, is I'm going to have Andrew start and just to t- tell the story of his family business and you know what are some of the stories you remember about how the family's dealt with uncertainty in the past and maybe if there were decisions made during those times that changed the course of the business, that would be interesting for us to tell, understand as well. So Andrew? Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to uh, to be here uh, this afternoon. And uh, I just thought I'd start with a disclaimer. Um, sometimes when you get up on these panels, you portray that sort of everything is perfect in your business and everything's p- perfect in your life. And I want to be very clear, that is not the case with my business <laughs> or with my life. Uh, but I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to offering uh, some, some insights. So Moosehead Breweries, multi-generational family business, started about a kilometer from here, from right where we're sitting, just across from Halifax Shipyard on the Dartmouth side of uh, Halifax Harbour by my great, great, great grandmother, a woman named Susanna Oland, uh, moved from England to Halifax in 1865, a family of very limited means. Her husband, John, was a bit of a man about town, but didn't do much about town. And uh, she was she was a, a home brewer, as many women were at the time. She was able to secure some capital, and uh, they started uh, in 1867. And what I thought is I'd t- take you through four stories sort of between... 1867 and, uh, and about 1978. Because I think in any multi-generational family business, there's one or two big events or big decisions that define that, that generation. And as I've been going through this, as reflecting on this in advance of, of the remarks this afternoon, what occurred to me was they often occurred when the next generation was relatively young in their tenure. So it was the next generation coming in and saying, yeah, this may be your company today, but it's mine tomorrow, and this is what we need to do today to pivot or to adjust to go forward. So Susanna, a relatively successful business from 1867 on to uh, when she died in 1885, in addition to starting the business and running it for uh, almost 20 years, she did something very unusual for the time. She left the business to her youngest son when she died. 
and that was in 1885. And uh, I think it turned out to be a pretty good decision because her son George ran the business until 1933. And that included by far the most traumatic event uh, in the history of, of what is now Moosehead Breweries and the Olin family. Um, that would be the Halifax explosion. So I think most people in this room would know about the Halifax explosion. At that time, the brewery was in the, the north end of Halifax. Brewery was completely destroyed. A member of the family died. And that's where you had the split between, I'll call it the Halifax Olins and the St. John Olins. So George uh, Olin was still very much in charge. He and some of his sons stayed in Halifax and rebuilt here in Halifax. My great-grandfather, another George, George B. Olin, to confuse things, uh, moved to St. John in 1918, purchased a brewery there and continued the family business. And the idea in 1917, 1918, that a business, that a brewery in, Saint, in Halifax would compete with a brewery in St. John, New Brunswick, would be like us going to the moon tomorrow. It just was not in anyone's, no one could uh, have foreseen that. In 1937, my grandfather, Philip Oland, had uh, graduated from UNB, had gone off to Europe, to Copenhagen, to brewing school. And this was his first expo exposure to lager beers. So prior uh, to 1937, as a brewery, and most breweries in Canada, all we brewed were ales. Stronger, darker, in 2019 terminology, less drinkable, less sessionable than lagers. And my grandfather came back, created a, a lager, uh, which, is, uh, um, which we're still selling today, Alpine Lager. It's actually our number one stellar, seller to this day in the province of New Brunswick. And his insight was just this, this and I'm trying not to speak beer sort of, commercial ter uh, terminology to you all, but his insight was just refreshment and the consumer. And I don't think too many people were thinking about the consumer in our family, in our business in 1937 or the previous 60 odd years. It was brew the beer, get it to the market, and that was it. But he had the first insight in terms of what does the consumer want and, and where, where is the uh, consumer going? And then the fourth story revolves around my father, again, a, a young man, early 1960s. So father was born in 1939, so he's sort of 23, 24. And a federal cabinet minister uh, was in St. John for a speech. And behind the podium is a banner, and the banner says, export or die. And my father tells this story this day. He had never thought of exporting. You now it, it was a business that was in, uh, sold beer in, uh, at that time, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI. Under rules of the time, you had to actually have a physical brewery in, in another province to, to sell beer there. And he would have family discussions with his father about the merits of exporting, but eventually uh, did export uh, starting in 1978 uh, to the United States. And so we were selling in California long before we were selling in Ontario, which is sort of classic uh, Canada. Uh, again, so, you know, if you think about my grandfather and the consumer and my father thinking about where is growth going to, uh, to come from? 
So I'll pass it over to John. Thanks, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to share a little bit of story about underwear. It's an exciting topic. Um, so our would be my great great grandfather uh, emigrated from England to Prince Edward Island in 1856 and built a factory there that basically made woolen blankets and such along the way. He eventually sold the business to his two sons, Frank and John. And Frank and John moved the business to Nova Scotia. They first went to St. Croix, which is down in the valley. And then they settled in Truro uh, in the 1870s and built a factory where we manufacture our product today. So we moved into that factory in 1882, and that's where our head office is. That's where the factory is. That's where we make today roughly you know, 70% of our products. We're not Lily White anymore. We do import. And when I think of the generations, probably where Stanfield's first got its name was in the 1890s which is, you know, amazing when you think of it. It was during the Klondike Gold Rush. Obviously, these people who were participating in that were running for money. They were probably uh, taking their lives in their own peril. And we were able to provide a one-piece combination made of coarse wool that would not only help them survive the climb, survive the weather, the rain, and everything else that went along with that, but when they found the gold, Stanfields was synonymous with you know, that particular product that went up the mountain with them. And the great story of that today, we still have the same shirt that they used when they went on the Klondike Cold Rush, other than it's not 100% wool anymore. It's like 80-20, so it's not as kind of itchy and scratchy. But that is uh, something that is very symbolic uh, in our company, and uh, especially in the Western market, it's still a very popular item, which is amazing. They call it the Island Tuxedo now. So those, that was probably where Stanfield's got its name. Frank and John were also political in nature. The Stanfield family also has either its underwear or its politics. Um, so it would be my great-grandfather was an MP for our area for lots of years. John Stanfield went to World War I, and he came back and he became a senator. So his brother Frank you know, eventually took him out, and, and then we get on to the third generation and that generation created, you know, they had patentable one-piece, what we call in Canada, combinations, what they call in the United States is union suits. So we had the patent for that, which was basically taking a shirt and a bottom and connecting them to one piece. And, of course, patents last for X amount of years. Today it would be probably worth money, but back then it was part of what we think around our place as being innovative in underwear products. So back then that was quite an innovation to uh, be able to put one piece underwear together. The other thing that uh, uh, would have been in my grandfather's generation, this is a third generation, was the shrink proof. Like that was on the outside of the building used to stay Stanfield's unshrinkable underwear, right? Like there was a process that um, in the time was uh, environmentally okay to do. It's not today. Uh, <laughs> So we had to take unshrinkable off the building and paint a big black uh, paint over. But, uh, you know, that is innovation as well. So that is separating, uh, differentiating your products in the market uh, versus what others are doing. Because at the end of the day, it is underwear. There are other people who make underwear and there's choices. My grandfather, who I never met, he died in 1967 of a heart attack. And uh, my father took over the business uh, at the age of 22 years old. He was just a recent graduate of uh, 
Tuck School of Business. I know it's not Ivy, but Tuck was uh, pretty good in the day. And uh, I remember the story that he told me about his profs. And his profs would say, like, geez, Tom, why are you going back to Toronto, Nova Scotia to run your little family business? Like, you should be going to Wall Street. You should be doing this and that. And he said, well, this is sometimes family duty, family calls. And unfortunately, a year after he got home, his father passed away. He was thrust into running the business and being handed the keys by his mother. One of the biggest impacts other than my father had on my career would have been my grandmother. So my my grandfather's um, Stanfield's wife, she lived next to me growing up. I spent a lot of time with her. When I was born, I was born uh, when Robert Stanfield was in Halifax at his speech and everybody in the family was there except for my mother was in the hospital giving birth to me. So I'm not sure if the the, the next underwear anointment was, was, was occurring. But certainly, um, and Charles lives in Charles, so he knows a lot about the family story in our area. So my grandmother was a heavy influence on really my participation and passion towards the business. I really didn't get that from my father when he was young because he was very busy. He was at work 16 hours a day, putting in all of that time, whereas today, like, I don't have to do that because we have people that can actually help. But you know, it, it came on later in life, my passion uh, for the business. There was, a, you know, a, a couple of things that in my time, so I would consider my time, I started in the business when I was 13 years old. I just completed my 35th year of uh, being in the business. So, and I'm still young uh, at under 50. But one of the things that I remember the most, I would have been in college and, and my father and the VP of sales at the time, similar to maybe what Andrew's story was around, you know, Canada only had so many people and so many restrictions in terms of um, where you could go with your business. And we felt, well, we'll just be smart. We'll go down to the U.S. We'll just take our products and replicate ourselves down there. We'll hire a sales force and do this and that. Well, the sample order was about the biggest order we got. And it was, uh, it was as we talked about there, maybe, maybe uh, you know, a flawed strategy, but really was probably when you look back on it, it was testing. Because of our presence at the shows, we recognized that we might have not have been able just to take our brands there and be successful. But what we did have expertise in is manufacturing, finance, capital, branding, understanding how the markets work, which led to the next year at the show, a little bit more eyes open about who might be available for us to acquire. So we can build a platform. We can start with that. So in 1993, which would have been my last year at university. That's what we did. We went down and acquired a company which started the geographic expansion for our business today. 1997, we acquired another American company in the snow sports specialty business. And and today, the revenues are about split. Actually, we probably have more U.S. revenues than Canadian revenues. Um, So if we didn't, if we hadn't have deployed that type of strategy back in the early 90s, we probably would be in trouble today because of what's going on in the retail market in Canada. We'll, I'm sure we'll get to some of the disruptive things that have happened to us. And these are the things like free trade agreement came in, NAFTA came in. We went from 900 employees to 600 employees. We re-engineered the firm again in 1993 and went to 500 employees. We're roughly a little bit over 300 today that are still uh, sewing product in Truro. So that to me... And uh, that was maybe at the front part of mine, Andrew, like Andrew referred to, a lot of the stuff gets done at the front. And it was probably in the middle of my father's, but it was a real turning point for our business when we pointed south. 
And today, you know, these types of things really uh, get you thinking about what is next, what is next for the company in terms of where are we going to grow. Uh, we'll talk about a bit of what happened to us in our Canadian market and how business evaporated, uh, essentially. But that is a little bit of the history line of where we came from. Thanks, John. So again, I'm going to ask uh, both the following question is, what's what's the biggest issue you're facing today or issues you're facing today? And maybe, you know, given what we've been talking about today, what are some of the greatest uncertainties that, that you're thinking about? Andrew, we'll start with you again. So I've been, uh, I've been president now for 11 years, and uh, I had to grin when you were doing the drug plan. I know about more about drugs than anyone. <laughs> Uh, we have, uh, maybe not Charles, but uh, let's just say we had some very generous uh, drug plan offerings, particularly for our retirees that I had to deal with uh, very early on in my tenure as a, as a new uh, uh, president, and I'll be dealing with those for the next 40 years from a cost perspective. So the reason I say that is when I became president, the decisions that I had to make were very easy. Executing them was difficult. So we've got to get out of the retiree healthcare business. We've got to get out of the defined benefit pension business. We've got to modernize the facility. We've got to evolve the culture from a culture of entitlement to culture of business uh, acumen, safety, things of those. So we've made good progress on those. So now it's like, okay, where do we want to go today? We've got options. Didn't really have options. Just have to get this done. And it's all about growth. And where do we find growth in a category uh, that is not growing and that is uh, under pressure from big, small government alternative products such as cannabis, all those those type of things. And so you're dealing with all of these sort of uncertainties in your day-to-day -day business or how you go to go to market while you're still looking to uh, to try to try to uncover those opportunities for growth. So Andrew, can you can you tell me maybe a little bit, I'm gonna just follow up with that. When you think of the different opportunities that are in front of you, what are those things you're taking in mind in terms of making that decision? Do you, have a, do you have a framework of some sort, a family history, or you know something that you've picked up along the line that's helping you frame those issues for you? I mean, ultimately it comes down to the consumer and where, where the consumer is going and what the consumer is, is, is looking for, but you also have to put that through the lens of the customer. So, and, you know, and people often get consumer and customer mixed up and they use the terms, you know, the consumer is the end user, the customer is the buyer, it's the bartender, it's the bar owner, it's NSLC, it's LCBO or things of that nature. And uh, as we are, you know, we have to be realistic as, as a smaller player in the category in terms of what are we going to be able to achieve from a customer perspective and actually be able to get it in front of our consumers. Thanks, Andrew. John? So I'll go with three. I probably have a list of 12, but I'll go with three main issues that have affected our business. I'm similar to uh, Andrew. I've been probably running our business for about 12 years as, as the lead. I've always been at the table, so to speak, uh, learning and understanding how the company made decisions and where 
not only the uh, the directors of the company thought we should go, but you know the family and management thought we should go. So lots of conversations in and around that. But I think my generation, even more so than my father's, my father would say, you know, we had the oil embargo, we had you know big time inflation in my time. We had kind of price controls that were in there. We had free trade, and after that came in there, he had to battle all those. But I think the the consolidation of the retail channel uh, and the bankruptcies that occurred uh, within our business, not only in Canada, but in North America, posed our biggest challenge and continue to pose challenges on our business as we have to remain very fluid through the process. And it's far from over. I don't want to wake up with that cybersecurity call. Like that scares the crap out of me. But I sat at my desk one day and the first one to go was Sports Authority in the US and that was our largest customer in our California business and they were 25% of our business. And I said, wow, I've never thought that I would have to deal with that because you're just humming along, you're humming along, everything's kind of good, then 25% of your business is gone the next day. Not only gone, but in the U.S., they sued for the receivable a year back, so you lost all the receivable that you collected too in that period leading up to that. So it was, uh, uh, it was roughly five million dollars that went out the door, which was, you know, an amazing amount of money. And uh, our North Carolina company, the largest customer in the snow sports side, went bankrupt as well within six months. And when I was dealing with that, I was thinking about what's next, and I could just think of Sears Canada and started to prepare for the demise of Sears Canada inside of my own mind, even though they were our third largest customer, I was always at the table saying, we must replace this customer. We must start now. We must move on. They're going to be gone. Oh no, John, they're okay. That's going to be all right. And well, it wasn't, they went bankrupt. So in that span of 18 months, we lost a sniff down revenue for our company of which we also had to recover and we had to manage towards. So that was a significant challenge for us. And, um, a little bit of a lesson learned for me on that was we always were a lean company in terms of management and style, but I think keeping lean, keeping very nimble, keeping very, I don't like the word use agile loosely because it's a big word used in business, but being to be able to have a little bit of agility inside of your business is key. And from that, as the reason why consolidation occurred and bankruptcy happened is because consumer preferences were changing rapidly and they're still changing. Whereas it's the onset of, of online and e-commerce businesses, the digital and social, how they change consumer preferences. And now it's all basically in your hand, which when you think about how you're running your life, you're running it out of your hand and the challenges that that poses for what I would consider ourselves as a manufacturer to bricks and mortar to the new world versus there's lots of underwear companies that are just online direct. That's how they start their business, but we have to come from a different angle. So that really challenges our position in the market. So consumer preferences, and they're evolving rapidly and impacting everybody. They just shrink margins immensely uh, because of that. And the third thing I would say, and it's really a result of two, is the people inside the business like i i love our people we have a great culture of our people but they don't fit anymore with where we need to go and some of these managers it's not their fault they've been with our business for 20 25 years and they've served us really well and it's not about having you know as they say that you know it's the wrong ass in the wrong seat type of thing but it's not it's not that they just the world has gone by them 
And that is really challenging for not only our company, but for probably every employer as to how do you deal with a 30-year employee that's very costly to get rid of? Do you move them sideways? What can you get out of them? But um, that is one of the things that I'm really challenged with today. What I'm really struggling with internally is how to um, do the skill set realignment inside of our business. Uh, and a couple of guys are here in my YPO form, Ian and Charles, uh, for disclosure, in my form group. So, you know, they hear a lot about my kind of rants and rambles from time to time. So they, they have a little bit of personal knowledge of that. <laughs> John, so uh, the world is changing. When you think about growth and where it might come from next, what, what are you thinking about? So the, the good thing that we've done is we've replaced all of that business over the two-year period that we lost with those three bankruptcies. And largely it was replaced through similar channel, maybe close proximity channels. But I think our growth in Canada is very challenged because of it's just not a big place. I mean, it's a big place in geography, but there's 36 million people. Uh, we're already coast to coast. I think we can expand a little bit maybe in channels. We can be a little bit better in industrial safety and those types of things. But I think our growth is probably going to come more from geographic expansion in the future versus kind of domestic expansion. Right. Thanks, John. So, uh, you know, uh, one more question and then we'll open it up to the to the group here. But, uh, you know, these are longstanding companies. So, you know, use your crystal ball. Where do you see uh, the business 10 years from now? So... In Canada, there are uh, four breweries who have a coast-to-coast operation. Sell across, have people in in um, in all all provinces. Uh, of course, Labatt, Molson, Sleeman, and Moosehead. Moosehead is the only one that's Canadian-owned. So Labatt, Molson, and uh, Sleeman's part of. Thank you. Um, so. We need to do a better job telling that story in a meaningful way that resonates with our that resonates with our consumers. So, so, from a branding point of view, we want to be at, in ten years. We'd like to be Canvas Brewery, and we're we're not there today. I would say that one of the challenges for Canadian companies is everyone knows what their first international or export market is going to be. It's easy. It's the United States. What's the second one? Is it Mexico? Is it South America? Is it CETA? Is it China? Like, you know, pick a spot, right? We don't have, as a country, a natural number two market. So we're going to have to figure that out for Moosehead in terms of where that's going to be. It won't start with bricks and mortar, but it wouldn't surprise at some point if it evolved to, to bricks and mortar just because of the nature of particularly shipping beer and the costs associated with that. That being said, in Canada, you know, we have a nice business in Ontario. We continue to have a nice business in the Maritimes. Lots of growth potentials we would still see in Western Canada. I know the folks in Alberta say that it's tough times there, but when you grow up in Atlantic Canada and you go to Alberta, it looks pretty good. And in classic Canadian fashion, we've only been shipping beer from New Brunswick to the province of Quebec for two years now. So it took us 150 years to do that. Um, And uh, so we would still see, uh, and there's, eight or nine million people live in Quebec. So 
still we still see opportunities in Canada, both from a volume but also from a margin play perspective. But we do need to find that either that one or that group of of international export opportunities. Thanks, Andrew. John. So in ten years I'd like to still be on Earth would be the first thing I would like to be because my kids are both young. And this business is very challenging. It comes with uh, a lot of heartache and a lot of heavy thoughts about producing product in Canada. We have taken enormous amount of pride in saying we're made in Canada. And um, some of our marketing people, internal and external, always say we got to put the flag up the pole and always say that. And I said, we can't say that 100%. So we have to be a Canadian company first. That's how we have to explain our story. And I talked about a story. Like we have, a, we have a fabulous story. And if people knew more about our story, I think they would resonate towards us as a company and us as a brand. Whether that brand is produced in Canada or produced in Vietnam or produced in the Caribbean Basin, wherever that might be produced. So probably our company is going to look a lot differently in where and how we make products uh, in 10 years. All of our competitors are global. We do not have a, a local competitor other than maybe Saks Apparel now, who has Saks underwear out there in Vancouver. They have done a really good job as a new entrant to the market. It's also allowed us to expand into a different price point. So I welcome them, right? Like they take a little bit of piece of the pie, but it also extends our brand from into a different price point that gives us opportunity for the future as much as anything. So I'm thankful for that. But our, our main competitors are Fruit of the Loom, Haynes, Calvin Klein, Jockey. I mean, these guys are big companies compared to to us sitting in Truro, Nova Scotia. So and saying that as, as retail consolidates, you know, pricing pressures come that forces you generally to go offshore to get production and to hire people in Truro to come in and be sowers. This generation just doesn't want to do it like the previous generation. And maybe they want to come in and run the balling line for beer, maybe a little bit simpler. Like we don't have a problem running our textile division. So our bigger machines, our knitting machines, our dyeing machines, these types of things. But to find people on the street to uh, come in and sell product is very challenging. The other growth is going to come from our U.S. businesses. Management and my my father would have thought of, he, he thought of it as a consolidated business. But how I'm structuring it, where I'm going with my senior leadership team is, is these three businesses are the same and we are working together. And the people that I put in place in those are going to help not only the company where they are situated, but they're going to provide insight and input to all three companies and help guide us to the future. Because the challenge that we face is a lot of the decision-making was in one person. And I don't want to be that one person 10 years out and even today. So I think you need at least four or five people at your table who can help guide you. Like I might be the CEO. I am the majority shareholder. I am the chairman, I am a stakeholder, I am a director, I have all kinds of responsibilities. And these people on the management team are really strong, help guide you for your next 10 years. And you have to really find strong people to help guide you. You can hire external people, you can have uh, sessions like this with your management team that could come in and help you get focused and so on and so forth. But it always it will come down to those who you surround yourself with to be to be successful. Great. Thanks, John. Uh, so at this point, open it up to, uh, to any questions in the group. 
So let me just repeat the question real quick. Uh, the question was asked, uh, how, how did you guys feel when you took the reins of the company? What was the relationship like with the family? And, you know, kind of how did, did you deal with that as you went forward? Uh, I'll start. So we had quite a long succession plan. In 2000, I became executive vice president of the company. That was really the onset of the succession plan to the president's role. I was appointed to the board at that time. So on our board of directors, we have independent directors, we have family directors. So those family directors were able to get exposed to me, my thinking, my participation, because I was probably, um, I had a couple of older cousins and I have younger cousins, of course, and my siblings never were interested in the business. So they really didn't know me. So they had to really understand how I thought. You know, was John just like the kid riding around his bike that was in his grandmother's yard? Is that that's how they probably thought of me at first. And uh, they were probably skeptical, like it's John, it's Tom's son. Tom's done a great job. Like John's not going to be able to do as well as his father. So there's probably a lot of skepticism when it came. So I had to earn their, and I really earned the respect through participation at the board level. And outside of that, trying to spend some time with them biggest thing when I kind of took over the whole thing was um, through all of this bankruptcy stuff. And basically, they really understood the chops that you have kind of thing to be able to like just put the machinations in place to survive that, not only capital-wise with your banking partners, your internal people, like, oh, my God, we're going to disappear. My job's going to go. Well, no, it's not. We're going to fix this. It's going to take time, but we're going to do it right. And they were more worried about their investment, like, oh, we got to sell, we got to move on from this business. And I'm saying, like, no, we need to generate value. You know, we need to, there's going to be time to recover. So I, um, and through that whole process, they gained, you know, a lot of respect for me as a leader, a lot of understanding of, um, you know, work ethic. And I'm not just, you know, the, you know, Tom's son from Truro. Uh, I'm a, you know, an individual who can lead a company, but I was probably greeted with a little bit of skepticism when I first started the, you know, the evolution of the process. So I'm the oldest of, uh, of four boys. Uh, my brother Patrick is our CFO and he has an interesting career. He was on the commercial side of the business, brand management, and at a early 30s decided he wanted to go back and become a CA at the time and went through the whole auditing thing and, uh, and so uh, went for there. My brother Matthew, who's currently running our cannabis business, was started in sales in sort of multinational CPG and then went over to marketing. And then my brother Giles is a IT entrepreneur here in Halifax. And my father was able to execute a buyout of uh, my uncle and aunt in the mid 2000s. So my father uh, had 100% of shares. So in 1997, father hired a gentleman named Bruce McCubbin to be the first non-Olin to be president of Moosehead. Bruce ran the company for about eight years. And then in 2005, Bruce was sort of starting to ease into retirement. So our VP of, of sales and marketing at the time, a gentleman named Stephen Poirier became uh, president. And true story, I'm sitting in my office, December, early, early December, 2007. And I get a call from my father's assistant, who's Janet, who's now my assistant. Your father wants to see you. Very unusual. I go down, it's father and Bruce. My immediate thought is what did I do wrong here? 
And they said, uh, Steve's resigned and we'd like you to become president. And all I could think of is, don't say anything stupid. They might change your mind. How do you get, how do you get out of this office as quick as you can? <laughs> so we sort of chatted for like, and, uh, and then they said, and we're not going to tell anyone till sort of January 15th or something like this. So this is like December 10th. So it's like a five minute meeting and I leave and sort of go back to what I was doing. And I get home that night. And my wife says, uh, Anything interesting happened today at work? <laughs> well, and I, I think from the, the rest of the family perspective, I was the one they would have seen as, as becoming the next president, but this was, uh, this was premature. This was earlier than, than we had expected. And in hindsight, I, if, if uh, they had made the decision, because I was, I was very early 40s, if they'd made the decision to bring someone in for a period of time, I that, would, that would have been a great experience for me and I would have been fine for that. And just one other thing I'll say is, uh, so I'm heavily involved in, in Tech Canada. I think most of you would know it in my, in my group. And part of the tech experience is uh, the tech chair, you have a monthly coaching meeting. And I would say from the second meeting that I had with, uh, with Mike Maller, the tech chair, is, is he was saying, Andrew, you know, you're the head of this family. You run the company, you're the head of the family. And I'm, well, I'm the head of the family. I'm 44 years old. And I said, no, you're the head of the family. And ultimately, when you are in that leadership position in the family business, you are the head of the family. There are lots of little decisions that, if they go the wrong way, can dis disrupt the dynamics of the family and it's not necessarily equal but it has to be fair and that's that's a role that's that i've had to grow into i would say and it's just to me it's 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 part of being a family business thanks guys any other questions so question is uh will robotics help uh, replace the need for labor on the sewing factory floor here in canada uh, yeah i think in time robotics can help support apparel manufacturers uh, in, throughout North America that are left. The technology isn't quite there in terms of, you would say, with your own fingertips, the dexterity of robots to move uh, things efficiently uh, down a production line on the sew side is not quite there yet. There's still multiple steps in sewing a T-shirt or a pair of boxer briefs that, um, you know, the robotics can't quite do yet. But I, I, I do think that someone is going to resolve that issue you know that might be in the 10-year window where we we could repatriate some of that product production back to canada if it happens to move offshore because of robotics have a level of labor force and then have a level of robotics and investment in technology and that should be able to support production there's a, a big question there so uh microbrewery is uh, very prevalent in the in the markets today and andrew do you have a, a plan for that and what do you think the future holds Great question. So I, I'm going to take it from uh, a couple of angles. So first of all, micro, craft, small, whatever you want to call it, breweries have been fabulous for the beer industry. 
if you look at the excitement and the interest of beer today versus 20 or 25 years ago, it wouldn't have been acceptable to, to in some cases, to have a beer in your hand at a, at a, you know, a high-end cocktail party or something like that 25 years ago. No, no, you, you have to have a scotch, right? So now there's, so there's lots, much more uh, offerings uh, available for the consumer and, uh, you know, the tremendous styles that are available for beer. And it's done just a lovely, lovely thing, and that is take a lot more money out of each of your pockets because it's premiumized the category. And you know, it used to be all on price, and now people don't think anything of going in in Nova Scotia and spending four fifty or five dollars for you know a four seventy three mil sixteen ounce can. And it's created different competition because you have consolidation with the big guys, so the Anheuser Busch, so the Bud, Bud Lights of the world, and then and then the Heinekens and all those. So there's massive consolidation there. One of the challenges in Canada that the small brewers face is in most provinces, they're subsidized. And if they go above a certain threshold or volume threshold, they lose that subsidy. So you have a, a business, let's pick a number, it's got an EBITDA $400,000, nice business, and then we buy them and now the EBITDA is $150,000 or less, or they merge and they lose the scale, they lose that markup advantage of, of both of those. And so that is, uh, you know, that's something that they're grappling with as they're trying to figure out their exit strategies. You've seen a few instances where both in the Canada and the US where the big guys have come in and they've absorbed that hit. And they've done it for one reason, and that's the brand. So they want the brand because they think they can grow the brand and because they th think they, they need to keep that, take up that shelf space. They'd rather have the shelf space from one of you know, theirs than, than somewhere else. So for us, when we look at, at those opportunities and the reason that we, we, we did one transaction, but it was really more for distribution reasons than... Uh, than for branding, you know, how do we overcome this small brewer's tax advantage? And, you know, if you've got the business with the $400,000 EBITDA, you expect to be paid off the $400,000 EBITDA, not the $150,000 EBITDA that you're gonna have, that we're gonna have. So that, that creates an issue. And then ultimately it becomes, you know, how strong is that brand? Because most of the brands are geographically constrained. So, okay, I'm craft beer in pick a spot. Stewiak, Nova Scotia. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go. You know, I'm craft beer in Chicago. Well, that's great. But when I go to Cleveland, I'm just the same as craft beer from everyone else. Why wouldn't I drink the Cleveland craft beer? Bose would be one of the ones that's been able to, I would say, do a good job, uh, as has Steam Whistle. They've, they've, gone, uh, they've gone beyond that. But most are very geographically limited. I'm not going to rephrase that one. Just go ahead. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think to a certain degree every day, those types of uh, things that can impact your community creep into your thought process about, for instance, if if we offshore more, what's the impact of that to our people? You need a you need a level of scale inside your manufacturing operation to support the overhead and these types of things. You know, people. I think drive by uh, our factory every day and say, 
you know, there it is. Stanfields is still there. You know, John and Tom are still in the building. Uh, things must be going swimmingly well. Uh, as Andrew alluded to earlier, it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's not as it appears from the uh, outside, uh, on the inside of the battleground, so to speak. You know, when I was younger, I felt an enormous responsibility in my community, and that was bestowed on me at a very young age through my father and would be my grandmother again about having to give back to the community, supporting the community. I did a lot of that when I was in my mid-20s to about the age of 40 before I uh, had my first child where I backed off some of the community stuff. So I got a a rec center built uh, in Truro. Um, Stanfields was a big donor to that, and I was the energy behind getting $30 million for that place through government and local. My father was instrumental in um, getting the new hospital built uh, in Truro and, and instrumental in raising money for the old hospital throughout the years. So there's, there's always a face, there's a serious responsibility that you take on when you're CEO of a family business in the Maritimes that has a significant size for that community. Now, Truro has changed. There's a lot of good-sized companies in Truro, so there's a little bit of diversification that's happened. There's other people that can rise up and take on and bear some of that responsibility. But there's no question deep down inside in your soul and in your heart, some of these um, you know, community impacts you know, really impact your decision when you're because you're making the decision alone. Really, it's your decision. So you can sit in a chair some night, you can be staring at a wall saying, when I make this call, it's going to affect those 22 people over there. And But at the end of the day, you're in business. Uh, you have to do the right things for your business to move it forward. And, and hopefully, um, you know, the decisions that you do make that are hurtful to people in your community can get dispersed in a short period of time throughout the community. Yeah, I've had to sort of, I've had to make a, you know, a number of tough decisions in terms of layoffs, restructurings, and all that type of stuff, as I'm sure everyone else in the is in the room had had to. And with my makeup, it's 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 very easy for, for me, not easy, but I, I quickly get to you know what's best for the long term of this business and generational. Uh, and you know, it's better to have a business with X minus fifteen percent employees in a community than you know X. So I, I don't I don't struggle. With that long history, obviously in the family, in terms of, of investing and volunteering in the community, I'm currently chair of the economic development entity for St. John New Brunswick. So, and that's giving back, but it's also it's very much if St. John's not a competitive city or community for attracting human capital, then we're just not going to be successful long term. You know, capital, human capital is just so mobile uh, and there's so many opportunities for folks to, to go. And so that's that's really, really part of how I got into that. I will just t- tell you a little bit, as I'm sure everyone here, you know, you're sort of inundated with these requests for corporate donations and all that type of thing. And so we did an exercise about five years ago where we did an extensive study and we actually picked a corporate charity. And we wanted something that would go across Canada, but would have an ability to make a significant impact in St. John. You know, some charities, the national office is in Toronto, and, you know, yeah, sure, 10% of the money goes local, but most of it's going to the national office for whatever they do. So we wanted that. We wanted something where our employees could actually volunteer 
as, as part of it. And then something connecting with families. So, and so we ended up picking uh, Habitat for Humanity. Thanks. Yeah, Keith. Um, I, it doesn't cause me any sleepless nights. Um, there's not a logical succession plan in place currently. My kids are nine and seven. I did get a little uh, heartstring the other night driving in the truck. Jackson and I were driving to hockey, and um, he said, Dad, I'm thinking about coming into the family business. <laughs> he said, I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm thinking about it. And, and then he said, you can't sell the factory. And, you know, so you sit there in the front seat driving the car, and you're going like, Oh man, if there's anything that could ever get you in a statement, it'd be that. So, you know, the, the, the battle, the, the battle lines have been drawn. So, um, the strategy needs to be mapped out for the next generation, but who knows where that will be. But from a, from a fundamental perspective, it is the desire of the family to maintain the business in the family, whether that is a, a sixth generation leader in the future. Hopefully, we would we would like to have that as a family, always as a as a head of the business, be a Stanfield or a, or a you know a generation of a Stanfield. It may happen to be that we need a transition. We might need an external CEO, president, uh, no different than Andrew referred to earlier, that allows us to transition, allows us to mentor that next generation. But um, on the radar today, it's not fully on the radar. If something were to probably happen to me, it would have to be uh, an external. CEO have to come in place unless my father chose to come back in the business, which I would highly doubt that he would, but uh, he would probably step back into a chairman type of role if something were to happen to me. So uh, I used to be able to just say, we have a rule in the family business, you have to work outside the family business before you work in the business, end of answer. I now have three adult children. My eldest is an architect, and so you never know, but Unlikely, my other one is a CPA with Ernst & Young, and the other is a CPA. Well, he took the course, the, the exams in uh, in September. So let's just say, hopefully, they're both CPAs or will be soon. And so it's becoming more of a topic. It's becoming more of a topic in my mind. I have had conversations with both of my younger children, so the, the accountants, about, you know, I'm not going anywhere, or hopefully I'm not. My brother, uh, Patrick, is not going anywhere, and if anything sort of happened, if I got hit by the proverbial bus, he would be the next, he would go in there right away. And so, you know, take some time, do some really cool things. You have just this incredible opportunity to work all over the world and really get exposed to things and stuff like that. And then it goes back to what I talked about earlier, right? in terms of the role as sort of the leadership of the family, because yeah, I've got three kids, but my brother Patrick has three kids and my brother Matthew has four kids and my brother, well, Giles's kids are only like one and two or something, but you know, so there's, there's, it's not just my kids. It's, and you get into really complicated, you know, well, whose kids can come and work in the business and what role and, Ultimately, we have set up the succession planning where I'm going to go on a little high horse here, but I don't believe cousins should ever own family business. I think siblings can own it, but I think when you get into cousins, I think they move from being owners to shareholders, and there's a completely different thing. And if they're going to be shareholders, 
somehow figure out how to give them some money and then they can be shareholders of TD Bank or Royal Bank and get the dividends from there and go to the shareholders meeting once a year and complain to those folks, right? And so we are, because that, uh, that's, 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 that's what happens, right? They're, they're like, well, I need the dividend of, you know, pick a number every year to support the lifestyle. And if it doesn't come in, well, I got this lifestyle I got to support, right? And business doesn't work like that. And, you know, one of the things, you know, about uncertain times, you just, you don't know. I mean, John had the situation with, you know, the, the accountant in California and then a couple more. I've had a similar situation where, you know, it was always there that we could lose this piece of business. But I think someone was talking about it here. It's like, but you know what? We really don't want to talk about that because, you know, that's just, we're having a good day. And why would we spend the next five hours talking about it? And then it happens and you got, you got to deal with it. So that was a bit of a rant. But anyhow, we're trying to get to the point. We, we're going to get to the point where we will just, it will go from generation five to generation six, just one family. It's your job to look after the family well, not the family business. The family wealth. Family wealth. Not the family business. It may sometimes you know, talking about money in a family business, it varies from family to family. And it's like talking about sex in a family. Like some families talk about it openly and some it never happens and you just appeared, right? And each family is different. I would say that I'm perhaps more inclined to talk about those aspects with the rest of the family than maybe previous generations were. I'm not sure if that's a, if that's just a, an advancement in time or if it's my makeup versus the interests of, of various previous generations in terms of talking about it. But ultimately it's, it's just, it's about communication. And I think about setting expectations and really, you know, there's sort of two elements of this. One is dealing with, with children, you know, whether they're eight years old or whether they're 58 years old and what, what the what's the scenario there what's going to look like and then the other element is is dealing with spouses and that is that can be challenging because you know everyone has expectations everyone has a struggle sometimes between a want and a need and that's where as a as a as a family there has to be some leadership and again it goes back to Fair, but not necessarily equal. And the littlest things can just be blown out of proportion and can be cause a lot of angst. On the other hand, I would say that a family business that does have some wealth gives you the, an amazing opportunity as a family. And so one of the things that we've copied from another family, uh, my parents are both in their early 80s, is we now do every couple of years a family trip together. So I don't know, it's all 23 or 24 of us. It's paid for by the business. And, you know, CRA gets their thousand percent or whatever, but they're, they're awesome. And so, and that's a good way to have communication. I would say the same thing. I think communication is, is very key inside of family wealth and inside of family business. And I agree with you, Andrew, like the prior generation just didn't do it. They didn't structure themselves to do it. They weren't as open to do it. It probably took me, I think, until the late 2000s to get my father to the table with my mother to talk to the sisters about 
how it was structured because they never knew how it was structured. And back in the, you know, before the succession plan kind of started, I, I would have two sisters that would have zero interest in the business, no interest in maybe doing anything with it. I don't know. But what I said to my father at the time was, if I don't have controlling interest in our family shareholdings, I don't want to go through the succession process because I know where it's going to land at the end of the day. So at least I had 100% of my vote, our family side, when I'm at the board table to deal with potential shareholder decisions. And we had shareholder decisions in the end when we were going through the big disruption process. And um, through that process, communication with the cousins was key. On the family wealth versus family business, as CEO, I focused very much on the family business and, and building the business and moving it forward because at the end of the day, that's going to generate value and wealth for the family. And what I always think of, and I've said this to my cousins inside of our family meetings, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, but I said, listen, if it's good for John, it's going to be good for you because I'm in the driver's seat and I'm not trying to drive this business into the ground. I'm trying to make it work so I can drive wealth for my children so they would have an opportunity to do what you know what I had as a child, which was to be able to travel and ski and play hockey and do all those types of things that everybody does. But So I think it's a combination of both. Obviously, if succession is not in the family and it becomes to a sale, then it's in my interest as CEO to drive the business to build it as big as I can, which will also drive the family wealth side if there is ever an exit strategy to the business from the family just saying, let's just roll the flag up. We've taken this as far as we can and let's carry on with life. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a balance. And just a small addition. Unfortunately, there's just a lack of financial creativity amongst many family business owners. It's, oh, well, I got four kids, so every kid gets 25% of the business. And and it's like, well, no. I mean, if you gave me a million dollars at 32 years old, instead of, you know, the, these shares at 70, well, guess what? You know, I'd probably take five or 10%. You know, like there's lots of ways you can do that. And to, to John's point, at a certain point, the next generation has to have control. They have to be able to make the tough decisions. The decisions are t tough enough, but if you've got to be worrying about going to the family council to you know, get the approval on the CapEx budget, then there's something wrong there. Chris, last, last question. Uh, yes. So, you know, when cannabis first came in, it was, that's cannabis. That's stupid. You know, why are we going to do this? And... Part of it was because all of my customers at the time in Canada, the liquor boards, saw this cannabis opportunity. And every time you went to them to sell beer, all they wanted to talk to you about was cannabis. And so we were a little late to the party. And it was because of me, because I was a little late getting on board in terms of, I think, the same issues as you, just getting comfortable with what cannabis is. It. And then, and this again speaks back to the family, one of the few times we actually had a family meeting which included my mother, on whether we're going to get into the cannabis business because it's, it's, it's a big deal. And mother was, uh, it, and it was an interesting comment my mother made. My mother's a veterinarian. And if you think about the whole issues with OxyContin and the, and the Sackler family and what they did, she said, boys, if 10 or 15 years from now it's proven that cannabis is actually harmful, Will you shut the business down? Yes, mom. <laughs>
That's great. Well, last question for John, just to keep things fair. Yeah, Debbie. Just on yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, we used to sh talk about share a stomach in terms of, I don't know what it is, share of brain cells or whatever, but it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, I would say there's not enough data so far to prove that it's affected the business or the beer business, but I see signs that it has. And it just comes back to the consumer who at the end of the day, and this is probably the person who's working for you, who has 25 bucks for Friday night, and I used to get it all with a case of beer, and now I only get a six pack because he's bought something else. Yeah. Do we have a question for John? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Andrew. Andrew. Uh, yeah. Canada's watching, John. Yeah, well, so international expansion has not been a priority. Uh, for the business. Our priority is to do what we do well in the markets that we know well, which has essentially been North America. So when you think of Stanfield's underwear, you think of Stanfield's. But we have the number one uh, ski base layer brand in the United States market, Hot Chilies. We have the number one brand, well, if I should say this or not, U.S. military base layer, uh, Homeland Security, Custom Border Patrol in XGO out of North Carolina. So what we have done is we've tried to strategically build brands in markets in North America that we know well, that we can manufacture here, that we can deliver here, and uh, we can expand that way. It's inter should we be focused on international markets? It, it all comes down to, to people and process where you're going to get it made and what's your priority in terms of um, you know where you're going to go with your business. And we we're very lean in our management and management style. It would be very difficult for us to execute what we need to do in North America and all three business units and then think about, okay, well, let's go, let's go to Europe because we decided CETA and let's focus on, you know, these five or six countries. I think we probably have to get there at some point. We do show up in little bits and pieces with our Hot Chilies brand in places like Japan and South Korea with our fire retardant and safety business in, in Norway, South Africa, and Australia, and their fire protection programs. So we, we do it. We don't do it probably as in-your-face as maybe we should, and obviously our company could do that. We would have to you know get a lot of help with doing that because our focus is primarily North American in the channels and categories that, that we know well. But there's no question... We have to look geographically. It's just a matter of, you know, when and then how we're going to take that approach to protect the Stanfields brand so it can be legacy forever <laughs> and the building can still stand up and people can come and see it and so on. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Thanks to John and Andrew. Would you guys join me in thanking them? You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.